1: The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. All Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com/culture and using the promo code CULTURE. And by the new podcast Dog Smarts. Each episode features leading researchers and academics that tackle questions of language, memory, intelligence, and even love as they pertain to our dogs. Subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. And by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Umqua Bank and hosted by Suchin Pak. Download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you
3: get your podcasts.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Stephen and this is the slate culture gap this race class gosling edition it's wednesday june 1st 2016. On today's show, The Nice Guys, is a Shane Black, he of Lethal Weapon fame, Buddy Cop, Romp, it stars Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. And then what is it about television and the depiction of social class, where once work defined the fictional characters we see on TV, characters now appear to exist in something of a classless void? We discuss a wonderful essay by Wesley Morris. And finally, the black film canon, we discuss Slate's list of the 50 greatest films by black film directors with its co-creator, Aisha Harris. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey. Julia.
1: Hello, Steve.
2: Uh, Welcome to the beginning of summer, right? Here it is. Yeah. Hello. And filling in for Dana Stevens, who's still on book leave, we have Wesley Morris, the critic at large for the New York Times. Hey, Wesley.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me.
2: It's uh, always a total pleasure. I have to say, Julia, I regard Memorial Day essentially as a toboggan poised at the apex of a slippery slope. And you just tap it on Memorial Day and you open your eyes uh, two seconds later and it's Labor Day. I just, I've gotten to that age <laughs> I didn't know where that was going. <laughs> the summer just freaking flies by like nobody's business. So well, here Stephen, comes, don't say
0: that. I can't afford to have summer fly by. I have too much stuff to do.
2: It's... I know. I'm on that same toboggan too, my friend. Yeah, I mean.
0: I,
1: I think go to the beach. Set your set your micro your word processor on auto write, (laughs) and then when you come back, your book is written. I hear that's how it works.
2: Uh, That's that's it. That's exactly how it works.
0: Okay.
1: When you're a robot,
2: that's how it works. Yeah, on the magic toboggan. Um, Julia Turner, undoubtedly, we have some business. Yes,
1: we do. Numero uno, we are doing a live show this summer at The Mount on Thursday, August 4th. Yes, The Mount, the home of Edith Wharton, a beautiful place in Lenox, Massachusetts, near other beautiful places in Massachusetts. So if you will be in that area or are still figuring out where you're going to be in early August, consider being there with us. It'll surely be a very fun show. Tickets are not yet available, but they will be soon at slate.com slash live, and we'll keep you posted on that. But in the meanwhile, circle the date on your calendar, Thursday, August 4th. Number two, I think because it is officially the beginning of the toboggan ride of summer, that means it is time for our annual tradition, the summer strut playlist. This means that we need you to nominate songs that we can strut to. We will put a post on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest that is expressly for the purpose of making these submissions. We will also be collecting suggestions on Twitter if you want to tweet to our account at Slate Cult Fest. We will put together a master Spotify playlist. We will assess these songs and see whether they are in fact struttable, the definition of which means that when you listen to them and you walk down the streets of wherever it is that you walk, you feel like a badass as you listen because the beat is so sturdy and the song is so great uh, and then we will reconvene and discuss those songs and anoint the best of them in a few weeks finally our plus topic for today if you are a sleep plus member you can stick around and listen to me Stephen wesley discuss cord cutting and how we actually watch television these days when there is so much television to be
2: watched all right, moving on. The Nice Guys is a 70s L.A. neo-retro noir, something like that. Uh, it's about a missing girl and the sweetly inept if often ultra-violent quest to find her. And the porn film that she stars in, one that exposes, I suppose, if I follow the plot at all, the auto industry's complicity in the smog over L.A. It's written and directed by Shane Black of Lethal Weapon and Iron Man 3 fame. It stars Russell Crowe as the enforcer Jack Healy and Ryan Gosling as Holland March, the inept private detective with a semi-sweet heart. Let's listen to a clip.
1: Did you fall down the hill? I had like two f- three drinks, Tops. Yeah, that's why you can't walk straight. Oh, excuse me, I'm carrying a dead body and I have a chiffon in my face, so I'm sorry I'm not Perkishner off.
3: You can't even say Baryshnikov. <laughs> you did, didn't you? You <laughs> fell down. The bill. You get drunk, you lose your gun, you take your header off the balcony, and now you're gonna tell me it's like a, a hallowed time on a detective ploy, right? It was very slippery up there, okay? I was, I was in the pool.
0: <laughs> you were in the pool? Yeah. Why? I had to question the mermaids. What were you doing while I was working?
2: Wesley, you were a film critic. I'm very curious how you might have reacted to this in a professional capacity. It certainly features some some charming performances. It's very shaggy dog. One would say it manages to be both convoluted. The plot manages to be both convoluted and thin at the same time. That's not an easy feat. What do you make of this It is
0: not easy to pull that off, but Shane Black, more power to him. (laughs) <laughs> Cause this movie is as shallow as as it's pretty shallow, but it has aspirations to like great sort of cultural and political depths, right? Does it? Oh, I, I... mean, I, I okay. Mate, I'm not saying that it's trying to be inherent Vice or Chinatown or any such thing, but I do think it it wants to be in conversation with that sort of movie, right? Mm-hmm. And so. I think the thing that the lightness of the movie is its most pleasurable aspect, but I just found the, the sort of political caper. It Mm -hmm. goes right up to the edge of satire and then just stops. And I felt like all the stuff with the hippie, there's so many funny things in this movie that I wish had given an extra tweak of comedy. Uh, But I think he's like I would like to have to know whether or not, The script existed in the way that it does, especially for Ryan Gosling's character Mm -hmm. and whether or not Gosling got involved and and there had been an attempt to sort of get to goose it more for him. I enjoyed watching this movie. I love those two guys together, Russell Crowe and, and Ryan Gosling. I could have done without the daughter except for the fact that she actually turns out to be really good. And then her involvement brings in this other little girl who hangs out at her house. There's some really good details in this movie and I had a good enough time watching it. And, and the thing I guess we can sort of talk about from a cultural standpoint is this is a movie that used to come out like every weekend, like you, mm. every other weekend you'd get something and very like often this. written by
2: Shane black right, if, or imitating not, Shane not infrequently
0: black. written by Shane black. And it, it was fun, and there were no. it was no pressure on it to like make a lot of money, and then
2: mm-hmm.
0: I don't. And it hasn't. And it and it <laughs> hasn't. But I, I don't know. I just I'm so dispirited by by all of the retroness of this movie that yeah. it, it sort oh. of feels so stuck in. I feel s- stuck in a place. I'm so sad.
1: I'm so sad. Everything you say is wise, and yet. Uh, like, I can't think critically about this movie because I have not laughed so hard in a movie theater oh. for like oh, five wow. years. Okay. <laughs> I loved this movie. I just thought it was hilarious. And after Neighbors 2, which, you know, was had funny moments and right. was a little shaggy and was less funny than the original, this movie was just genuinely freaking hilarious in a way that was a little bit more sophisticated, not just than Neighbors 2 (laughs) or Neighbors 1, (laughs) but it was like a little bit grown up. I mean, not super grown up because a lot of the gags were like dead bodies and people like cold cocking each other in the face with guns. And Mm -hmm. it's not like it was, you know, a like chortle, chortle, witty, witty Frasier comedy or whatever. There's a
0: little bit of that in this movie, though.
1: It just was a little bit grown up and funny at the same time, as opposed to thinking that if you want funny, you have to like dial back your age to like being an 18 year old mm. and sort mm. of like Judd Apatow, Paul Fagg, Like there's going to be like a gigantic poop explosion. I just lo- died laughing. There's a <laughs> the scene that made me laugh the hardest is there's a shootout at a car show. <laughs> and, oh, and yeah. And there's a this moment is... where Ryan Gosling is hiding, his detective character is hiding behind a car on like one of those spinning showcase things. So he's like got a moment of respite as he's being pursued by bandits and he's leaning up against the car in the manner of someone who's found shelter behind a car. But the, but you can tell, you can see that the car is turning him back <laughs> towards the assassin. <laughs> and before he can, and I mean, I was like, a I was alone in the theater and I like was laughing hilarious. You were alone? And, well, no, I, eventually everybody started laughing, but I started laughing like, Oh. oh second he laughing, got on that disc and maybe it just tickled my funny bone more than mm-hmm. others but like i would highly commend everybody who listens to the show to go see this movie because it is Whoa. so funny
2: <laughs> oh my god i'm gonna i'm gonna highly commend that you ignore that high <laughs> <laughs> because i i mean i i couldn't parse the confusions of this movie, that it's on the one hand, it's trying to be sort of a sinister L.A. noir in the tradition of L.A. Confidential in Chinatown. But it's also crossed with Ishtar, right? A movie in which Mm. two A-list actors Mm. who really typically don't do stoogy comedy. I would say uh,
0: floundering A-list actors, too. I mean, mm -hmm. Ishtar is a really smart way to bring this. And I'm saying this as a person who really likes the first 75 minutes of Ishtar. Yeah, me you too. guys are
1: just really complicating my ideas about
0: what Ishtar is, which is one of those things that I Have really... Have you seen
1: it? I've never seen it. Oh. I, I only know
0: it as like a punchline of a total you, failure. But wait, what kind of failure was it? I mean, I mean, the they, movie is about failure, period. And, right. And I mean, this is a total sidetrack, but now that you brought it up, it's so smart because... I'm finally smart. <laughs> You're always smart. That's why I love talking to you. And this is the Ishtar comparison is really great because, I mean, this movie, it isn't Ishtar on any level from a legendariness standpoint. And it also isn't Ishtar from, from an ambition standpoint. All right, but spin it out. In but, 1987. But in 1987, there was a moment at which these two great movie stars from a different era were kind of at, like not at the bottom, but not too far from it and this movie which had been in gestation for a while was trying to be made it got made came out and it was
2: terrible. elaine may elaine, elaine may, may. Right. presided over a famously chaotic set production uh, to yes. make it production yes. Yes. and that had been in the trade presses and and people were kind of gunning for the movie a little bit when it came out
0: so the legend of this movie preceded its opening then it opened and bombed and the a legend, huge, huge bomb. yes, and and so it it lives on as one of the worst movie as the worst movie ever made, and it's if you watch it, it's so far from that. The end, it falls apart, but I I, I like the comparison in that this too is a movie about like two fallen stars at a moment at which it, an entire industry is questioning itself and like mm-hmm. how to proceed. And right. and the movie's alleged failure is is pointing to the problems with the the way we think of and and conceive these big or not even I don't even know how big a production this even is. But these sort of star-driven, franchise lists, although, you know, there's plenty of room they leave open for sequels, questioning the state of things in terms of of what this sort of movie can do and should be.
2: Mm -hmm. I agree. We're at a similar moment where if it doesn't have, like, explosive diarrhea and puke jokes and dildo jokes in it, it's just not an American comedy anymore. And Shane Black and these two stars are sort of... I mean, it's a little bit different because they're trying to make a movie... Of the kind that uh, predominated in the '90s, uh, it's a kind of middle, happily middle brow, right? It's a like,
0: Joel Silver movie. His name is the exactly. first one I noticed on the screen. <laughs> right. I, I had a very good time with this movie, but I also it got on my nerves pretty much for this, for that, for the tension between the lightness and the morality or the moralizing aspect. And I think the problem for me was that the moralizing was kind of done by a child. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I, I just I'm so torn about that little girl's appearance. And, and the actress we talked about this before. I'm going to screw it up. But the actress who plays her name, who who plays her is named uh, Angori Rice. Angori Rice. Yeah. Yes. Um, She's good. And the girl who plays her friend who's in like two like she, in, in a sequence toward the end is also really good. But I just sort of felt like I was having my finger wagged at me. Mm -hmm. When I didn't need it to be. I mean, you know, this movie, if it had come out 20 years ago, wouldn't have needed the kid. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why now it needs the kid. But I mean, I definitely think that there is a sort of I mean, if Riggs and Murtaugh had had run around. (laughs) I mean, they didn't have they had Joe Pesci is what they had. And that I mean, the little girl is the Joe Pesci figure in those movies. Right. Except she's sort of the moral one. And I just feel like the thing with those Lethal Weapon movies was the more they went – the longer they went on, the, the bigger the themes became and they were mm. like fighting apartheid at some point. And
2: like, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, how Lethal could
0: you? <laughs> uh, they And then Lethal Weapon 4 was the gangbanger episode and it just – it was – they were taking on a lot and trying to still have the lightness that Danny Glover and Mel Gibson could give those movies and Shane Black of course is responsible for them and has a real way with like with lightness in the face of violence but at some point as a screenwriter and now as a director the the point at which the the movie turns into a shootout or a shoot 'em up it kind of gets away from him
1: I don't know. I mean, I agree with you guys that there's a bunch of tonal confusions here because at the core, there's this sense of like, can you be a bad guy and a nice guy at the same time? You know, there's sort of Mm -hmm. a boring moral arc. Mm -hmm. Can these guys become nice guys? Are they nice guys? What does it mean to be a nice guy? Like, that's, you know, very kind of neon blinking in the title of the movie. And that's what, I think that's what the little girl is doing there, annoying or not from a structural sense. I think from a performance and comedy sense, she's great. She's great. And she's She's not, it's not like... um, What's the name of the girl with the ringlet curls from 15 years ago? She's not like a treacly little, you know, Moppet.
0: Oh, wait. Who are you thinking of? Yeah, which which (laughs)
1: Moppet? Which Moppet? Moppet? The the one who played like Curly Sue or something like that. Oh, who just won The Voice?
3: (laughs) Did she? She
1: just won The Voice. She won The Voice last week. Did not know that. What's her
0: name? I can't remember because she's the girl from The Voice to me. But well, yeah, she just won the voice. But, and
1: whatever. When we're talking about a kid in the movie, it's not like a little sweetie punks comes in and, and like pokes her finger in her dimple and is like, guys, don't kill all those people. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's, she's like a sardonic little. Uh, oh my God. She's Tatum O'Neill
0: in Paper Moon. Another
2: movie that yeah, this it's movie a, it's is, true. is interested It's in. very much so. Anyway, Tatum, she's
1: Tatum, less Tatum, annoying Tatum, than yeah. you guys have made out. So there's the, there's the core story of a, of a fairly boring morality play. Then it's sort of set in the world of like a dark parallax view, 70s conspiracy, nothing good will come of this cynical, our whole culture is doomed plot that it does not take particularly seriously. And then there's the like movies can save us all conceit, which it also doesn't take very seriously. I mean, it doesn't take anything seriously. I don't think Mm. any of it is taken seriously except its desire to help Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. And Angulry Rice make you laugh. But I found that charming instead of disappointing. Like, Mm -hmm. I just just didn't want to think about it too hard. I just was sitting there on Memorial Day weekend at the top of the toboggan, (laughs) dying laughing. Like, I got so many belly laughs from this movie. And I I mean, what other comedy have you guys seen recently that made you just crack up as hard as this movie?
2: Neighbors, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I really but, like Keanu, but... but listen, we'd be remiss if we exited this segment without pointing out that Shane Black has made the same movie but much better in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yes,
1: yes. But did that have some kind of fat? Like, did did he pull off the balancing act of what the movie was about? No, and its themes any
0: better. But its themes were sort of bound up in its stars, which is the yes. difference. And that movie was as much a that that was to me as much a movie about stardom. As it was, I mean, it was only a movie about stardom in a weird way, mm-hmm. and in persona. And this movie is about two stars mixed up in a in a caper plot mm-hmm. that you can sort of get, can regenerate itself right. unto eternity, right? You can you can have five more of these movies in five. Minutes. I hope they do. All
2: right, <laughs> the movie is the Nice Guys. It's with Gosling and Crow. It's from Shane Black, and we split on it, which means we want to hear from you at facebook.com slash CultureFest. So. Come and tell us what you thought. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to our listeners this week by Casper. The mattress industry has forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups, and Casper is revolutionizing that industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. The Casper mattress is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce free shipping and returns to the u.s and canada and try casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home if you don't love it they'll pick it up and refund you everything to me that is the greatest thing that is the greatest innovation in mattressing that is happening here is that you can try the thing and then return it it seems so common sense but it has been so hard to find for so long get 50 dollars toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com culture and using promo code culture terms and conditions apply All right, Steve, what's next?
2: Okay, moving on. In 2007, television underwent a great expansion beyond the major broadcast networks, beyond televisions, and into all kinds of genres. Just at the moment, the economy shrank and a fantasy emerged. So says Wesley Morris, of course, our co-host today. In his essay... TV's dwindling middle class. Wesley, if you don't mind, I'm going to continue quoting you just for a second to give people the flavor of the piece. As real people became poorer and lost their jobs, the ones on TV got richer, and their jobs seemed to be more beside the point. All that space to tell new stories ended up dedicated to a limited set of jobs and an increasingly homogeneous notion of what work even means. And Wesley, just to drive it home, you go on and say, now on TV, no matter your actual job, almost everybody belongs to the same generic, vaguely upper class class. Talk to me a little bit about your thesis and how you came upon it. I mean, the idea here essentially is that you turn on TV and someone maybe is playing a police detective and they're still wearing a $2,800 suit. Everyone looks uh, bespoke and uh, there seems to be a profound disconnect between what people actually do for work and how they live.
0: Yeah. And it always, I mean, I think everybody who watches TV at some point has this moment where they're aware of, for instance, Rachel and Monica's apartment on Friends, for instance, I think is sort of the classic example of this disconnect between, if not actual employment and and lifestyle, then at least the fantasy of a class that doesn't really have anything to do with what you actually do for a living. And I think I just sort of wanted to try to figure out the story of how we got from the 1970s and 1980s to now, where even in the 80s you had a demonstrable class system and there was a middle class, an upper class, and poor people. Um, There weren't as many as there were in the 70s, poor people-wise. But Mm. there was definitely a working class on television. And the argument that I'm making is, is one of them anyway, is that at some point you had the people who make your TV just so far from the people that they're writing about to the, you wind up writing about basically what you know, which is a classic writerly thing to do. It's also easier to imagine a frictionless world where class isn't the problem among the characters or for the characters. It's a platform on which for which the drama and the comedy can take place. So mm-hmm. it's a stage as opposed to a situation. Uh-huh. Um, and I think in that you just lose this great aspect of who we are as a country and as a people and as each other's neighbors, and that is it, there. You notice it more when you see it versus when you don't see it, right? Right. I, I don't know. I feel like the turning point for me was sometime in the '80s when, uh, look, a show like Cheers became the bar itself became this haven for a kind of class-oriented classlessness where Mm -hmm. like these working class guys would gather at this bar and a lot of the the comedy would be aimed at Diane, for instance, for being... This snooty grad student mm, um, mm-hmm. i don't know i mean i I think right. there there was a there was a turn, and I think that the the, the cosby roseanne split I mean we can talk about this because um, i 'm not doing a very good job of being concise about what the transition was, but I definitely mm-hmm. think that when TV began it was much more interested in right. working class people and the aspiration to middle classness and TV now is about having already achieved <laughs> a kind of non-class class.
1: Right. It's about having so much you don't have to worry about it and, and just right. obviously your house looks like that and your clothes look like that and your hair looks like right. that and and the plot proceeds without accounting for all of those things. Right. Yeah. I mean Cheers is such an interesting example because you cited it as the original Hangout show and the Hangout show is sort of your job and the situation is, is just an excuse for friendship on screen as opposed to like a true plot mechanism that has anything to do with how we work and why we work. But Cheers is, Cheers is different than some of these shows because Cheers does explicitly set itself up as a gathering place for these types. And they sort yes. of have the, the, you know, the earnest grad student of Diane. You have the snooty, snooty Fraser. You've got kind of striving Rebecca. You, you always have some upper class overlord snot, you know, tightly wound Lilith. Right. Uh, to be the <laughs> counterpoint to Norm and Cliff and, you know, Sam and all these guys who are just kind of hanging out and are more... More broey, and to use a word that we wouldn't have used then, and um, Carla, of course, right, who's, sure. you're always sort of hearing about her marital discontents. She certainly seems like a working class broad, but perhaps, perhaps one of the lessons to draw is like what is the show that came out of that show and then lasted for fifteen years? Is that right, we didn't go yeah. we go follow Carla home and hang right. out in her house? We went right. off into like the opera right. in Seattle, and you right. know the the kind of luxe life of a radio host, apparently. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I'm somewhat skeptical of your thesis just on the sheer theory that there is so much TV out there right now, and a lot of it is dealing with these things. I mean, Kimmy Schmidt, I think, is a good example of what you're talking about because ostensibly it talks about money in New York City very directly, and its main characters are poor or, you know, newly toppled from the, to- from the uh, apex of the social perch in the case of Jane Krakowski's character, and yet they're not like uh, – working-class people dealing with intolerable, like, shift changes in their Starbucks barista schedule, you know? (laughs) They're sort of, like, doing whatever the hell they want, and, like, maybe some money comes in in some mysterious way. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you think about a show like Orange is the New Black, you know, that, that, I think, gets pretty seriously into the backgrounds of these people. I feel like in shows like... You know, the killing you were dealing with, the economics. Uh, I mean, there, there, there's just lots of different kinds of shows out there. It feels like in some of the premium TV land, you are people are exploring this territory. Obviously, David Simon's whole oeuvre. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Can I add some seat-of-the-pants pop sociology to this discussion? If the changes date to the 80s, it seems to me it's too... Se- separate but very related phenomena, right? I mean, the first is, you know, massive offshoring of physical working class labor from the United States to Asia, principally China, right? So a lot of this work just simply disappeared, right? And this this is in the numbers and this is not the subjective opinion. I mean, there, there are fewer and fewer manufacturing jobs relative to service economy jobs. So the old working class has changed. I mean, it's just diminished, like especially the labor union belonging kind of Archie Bunker, as a social type is is um, is almost gone or certainly in the process of disappearing. And the second is the niching down of um, taste and the expansion of cable channels and outlets meant that different social classes or tribes watch different programs. And so no program bears the burden of having to unify all modes of class consciousness into itself and depict them back to America as successfully universally middle-class society. And Cheers is interesting because it happens during this transition. So its attempt was to say, okay, we're gonna take a neutral territory, right? That's open to all social classes of Boston. They all do commingle there, but everyone is still gonna be, there is still this place you can go where we all do hang out, right? And there you get to be or describe or represent your social class in kind of nakedly class terms, going from Shelley Long down to uh, Rhea Perlman, right? But that was it. That was the beginning of it breaking apart. Both kind of the taste polis and the economic polis begin um, separating out. So, I mean, I guess the question is, yes, there are working class people on television, but none of them really has the iconic status of Archie Bunker, Ralph Cramden, you know, Carla the Waitress. No one quite knows what to do with that. And also no one knows what the hell the word middle class refers to anymore. Right.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it would be interesting if there was just a sitcom or drama set in the world of one of the characters on Orange is the New Black, just like one of the flashbacks just is the show. That's the series, like trying to deal with all those various travails of various stripes. On the other hand, I do wonder if there's something here about how media has changed the experience of being whatever class you are, because you sort of, there are all those studies about how the proximity to invisibility into... Other economic situations are the things that, like, itch you most and get under your skin Mm -hmm. most. And I wonder if we're just living in a moment where – I mean, we've talked about this even with the reality shows. Like, reality shows are fundamentally classless. And that was one of the things that struck us as refreshing about the Jersey Shore when it first emerged was that it did seem like a specific socioeconomic, like, group as opposed to this bunch of, like, spray-tanned – so-called dog entrepreneurs or whatever the, heck the people are on The Bachelor and The right. Bachelorette. Right. Um, but I wonder if there is something of like, you know, whatever, the like at the empathy of the American working class right now for Donald Trump. It's like everybody thinks they're almost a millionaire. Everybody thinks they're, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm like bullshitting here in a way that probably doesn't actually make sense. No,
0: I mean, I think you're getting it's something that, at least with the Trump thing, which is that if you listen to these people talk about, Why they believe in Trump and what they believe Trump can do—it's that they believe in his business savvy and his his alleged business savvy. I mean, and this is all through the advertising of the show, which is a show about weirdly about work, right? The Apprentice is a show about demonstrating your capacity for not just work, though, right? It's about it's a to demonstrate your capacity for pleasing your employer which is a a totally different orientation of the way class works, right? Ordinarily, you'd get a show about the workers and it'd be like Mr. Spacely would be this really annoying guy who kept you from, you know, having your dinner with your family on the Jetsons. Now, Mr. Spacely is like the most charismatic person in the world on this show. And he determines whether you live or die. And he gets to be this totalitarian figure. And if The Apprentice works for you, the thing that you're aspiring to more than anything is to please the totalitarian dictator who is determining your fate on this show. Like, do you get this job or do you not get this job? Well, the only way to get the job is to make Mr. Trump happy. It's a completely upside down version of the way, I mean, at least in my understanding of the way classes has typically worked on yeah. TV.
1: It's interesting also you see a lot of – to the degree that work is the subject of some of these shows, you see a lot of like either they're – you're seeing the boss. Like the boss is the star. Like Olivia Pope. It's like the president and the the baddest bitch in the game are – The, you know, the two stars of the show. Or it's like the brilliant savant, right? Like what's her face on bones or the the Merska Hargitay character on SVU Who's like, she's just so, she's just got to save those. Victims with her skills, you know, right. she's not like the person who's like being forced to do overtime because some diva is like, we're going to work all weekend to <laughs> crack this case, you know, right?
0: or where like the toll it takes on her is I, I, I just feel like there's a more there's a less procedural version of that show in particular that really I and mean, they've tried to get it her own. Personal traumas and stuff, but that's not interesting to me, right? Would be what would be more interesting is if they took something like the Mysteries of Laura, if they took that horrible show and made it a in in in, in late. Do you know what that is? That Deborah Messing show oh, where yeah, she's yeah. like she's incompetent at home but brilliant at work. Oh yeah, she's like a single mom. No, she well she is now because she got divorced or something. Is that show still in the air? I believe it's very popular. <laughs> 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 <Shit>. <laughs> America can't live without it's Deborah Messing, but. I want to stay in the orange is the new black space for one second because the thing I just remembered about that show was in season three. The guards were threatening to go on strike because they weren't being paid enough and they found out that they were also kind of being exploited. Uh, There there was a I mean the class structure on the other side of, of the bars so to speak was really interesting because it imperiled the of the prisoners themselves. And the show is obviously aware of the way the class system functions and uh, – but it's still functioning in this – at a remove in a weird way. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. I mean I, I
1: – I, we could talk about this for like 100 hours because I want to – I keep coming up with shows in my mind that I'm like what about – X, like well, right now, like, I'm like, what about The Office? Well, The Office
0: is a good one too, but that's not, that's a, that's. It's set in the upper, the like lower middle class. But it never but it brings anything yeah. to bear on the workplace. Do you know what I mean? Right. And I feel like that's an office comedy or an office, a workplace comedy that is not about class. It's a right. hangout show set in an office. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. there's a power dynamic, but Michael Scott's whole relationship to those people is how he doesn't want to be the boss and they don't take him seriously one way or the other. I was thinking more and in writing this piece, I became momentarily obsessed with arguing against myself by focusing purely on reality television. Right. But yeah. then once you do that, the class the classes in no shows are completely aspirational or they're completely exploitative of the working class that they depict, or mm-hmm. or show like Duck Dynasty, which is class specific but but work agnostic in a weird way, like they work themselves into the aspirational Trump space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Undercover Boss to me is maybe the most moving show on TV, and that is a show about the ho- about the top tier of the company intermingling with the lower tier of the company.
1: Yeah, we talked, we talked about it on the show and yeah. I haven't
0: watched it since, but it's it was, it
2: was like I really it exactly striking. Describe it. Yeah. Yeah, it, I is, totally
0: it is agree. a beautiful show that really does get at not so much the exact problem that I'm thinking about, but it does get at the sort of general problem with the way we think about Mm -hmm. class at this this point.
2: You know what? I think I have a general point to end on, which is that in the 70s and the heyday of Norman Lear, it was really about people occupying fixed social positions or economic positions, confronting one another and speaking for something semi-stable like a social class. Mm -hmm. When you look at what we've... The two shows that we've kind of focused on a little bit are Orange is the New Black and Undercover Boss... It's much more about social distances and how wide they've become and how unusual it is for people at a social distance to occupy the same space and be forced to encounter and confront one another and speak for and to the distance, right? I mean, she's a, a white chick who gets, you know, through a fluke put in jail and suddenly has to see this entire world that her whole life has been about sheltering herself from. And similarly, Undercover Boss, I mean, the distance now in pay between a CEO and the lowest employees thousands upon thousands of times larger than it was even 30 years ago. So to me, it's really about the lack of social cohesion brought about by inequality that creates no common spaces in which people naturally encounter each other right. um, if they occupy different social classes. And so they can only be produced synthetically and what ensues is interesting but um, anyway, we'll have to take this up on an ongoing basis. It becomes one of the things that we talk about as the world changes, I hope. But um, Wesley, it was an awesome essay. It's called TV's Dwindling Middle Class. Check it out. It's on The New York Times. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
1: The Culture Gab Fest is also brought to our listeners by Purina and the podcast Dog Smarts. Does your dog understand what you're saying? Can your dog sense when you're sad? Can nutrition have a positive impact on your dog's cognitive health? If you've asked yourself these questions, you need to tune in to Dog Smarts. Hosted by author and professor of cognitive neuroscience at Duke University, Dr. Brian Hare, each episode of Dog Smarts brings together the brightest researchers and academics to discuss what's really going on in your dog's brain. Download and subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes today. All right, Steve, what's next?
2: Okay, moving on. In our never-ending conversation or argument about which films deserve to be remembered, which films are cultural touchstones, which define and advance the art form, we habitually overlook stories by and about black people. So writes Aisha Harrison, the black film canon now up on Slate. Aisha, I'm going to continue to quote you a little bit more. It's time to fight the canons that be. So Slate has asked more than 20 prominent filmmakers, critics and scholars among them, Wesley Morris, for their favorite movies by filmmakers of color... And used their picks to shape a list of fifty greatest films by Black directors. Aisha, it's about time, right?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, the whole point that myself and Dan Coy, who was actually the brains behind this whole project, what we wanted to do was like not only, you know, speak to Oscars so white and that whole controversy, but also just the fact that, you know, whenever we're talking about the greatest films of all time outside of the Oscars, like, it's very rare that we are talking about films that are made about and by people of color and black people specifically. So for us, we felt like it was really important to get the word out that there are so many great filmmakers, black filmmakers out there who, like, don't get their due. And I learned a lot even while putting this together. Like, there are certain movies on our list that I've never heard of until now or that I hadn't gotten the time to see and I finally make, made the chance to see, and I'm really glad that we were able to do this. Like It was very educational for me.
1: Mm-hmm. I have one thing that's really striking in the introduction, Aisha, is that you highlight 10 lists. So 10 film canon lists. I think one is the... I think there's eight AFI lists, there's a sight and sound list, and there's one other list, but sort of 10 lists of 100 movies, so 1,000 movies. And of those 1,000 movies held up as the greatest movies of all time, only two were made by black directors, which is the criterion you guys use to for inclusion in the black film canon here, which is like a pretty devastating statistic in my view.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really kind of disappointing because I, I, I do feel like anytime we are talking about it, that one, like the one outlier is Spike Lee and it's Do the Right Thing, which like obviously on the list we said, you know, that was sort of like, even though we didn't rank the films, like that was obviously the number one uh, film on our list. And that was the, the one movie that everyone, not everyone, but a lot of the people we reached out to that was on their list. So undoubtedly, that's a great film. But there's so many other people besides Spike Lee who came before Spike Lee and who, you know, Spike Lee himself has, he's been a great proponent and like advocator for, other black directors, so like a lot of them are included on this list too. Uh, so I, I think I'm really glad that we are able to open up this this discussion and get people talking about all these these great filmmakers who aren't talked about: Charles Burnett, Ernest Dickerson, Casey Lemon, Gina Prince-Bythewood. Like, it's about time they all get their due. Uh,
1: Wesley, you got the you got the nod. You were one of the people who was tapped to try to drum up the right movies to include here what was your thought process as you kind of went through sending your initial responses to the crew and what
0: do you make of the final list my thought process I don't know I I was well first of all I was I was excited by it and then I was sort of torn as I sat down to to come up with five movies I thought a lot about voting for the sight and sound list every 10 years or whatever I mean I've only been invited once because it only happens every 10 years and So the last time I voted or the first time I voted and the only time I spent like a month really thinking about (laughs) which 10 movies to pick. And I had 20 movies and I I got the list down to 20 movies and the two movies that I mean the two sort of indisputably great movies uh, irrespective of, of the race of their makers for me are Killer of Sheep and Do the Right Thing but i like a much more idiosyncratic i mean i think the whole point of these of the the problem with the canons of course is that they're canons right and you get into all kinds of questions of politics and taste and 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 ultimate finiteness right and i could not Figure out with my five movies what I wanted the story of the five movies to tell. I also didn't know Aisha whether or not how these would be presented, and so I had to. I didn't. I didn't know how you would be announcing who chose which films. I didn't know if the lists would be if the candle like would be whether ranked. you should edit for the mix or you were. Well, just I mean, I I didn't. I just I so in telling the story of my the five movies, I wanted the the story I wanted to tell. I wanted the five the five movies I chose to tell were mostly about. Things that were obvious and sort of inarguable in the case of of I mean inarguable to me uh, in the case of kill, killer of sheep and do the right thing. But I also think there are a lot of things in the list is sort of the canon is, is designed to do this, which is to sort of point out a lot, a lot of filmmakers who nobody knows about. I kept my five movies to American movies, so I chose call, uh, killer of sheep. I chose I chose do the right thing. I chose When the Levees Broke. um, Which is Spike Lee's documentary about Katrina. Spike Lee's documentary about Katrina. Um, What else did I choose? A Hollywood Shuffle. Describe what that is for people who don't know. That's a great Robert Townsend movie that's kind of a satire about the racism of the Hollywood production process. And the things that black people are asked to do in the movies that perpetuate across centuries. The movie was made in 1987 and to watch it now is to be astonished by how little has changed at the at the same time obviously things have gotten better but i mean the things that are funny in that movie are kind of sadly timelessly funny i just feel like there's so many there's so much to there's so many stories you can tell with this list but i i think i guess i would ask aisha what she and dan wanted the list to do beyond remind people that these films exist
3: yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we we also know in in the piece is is that we it wasn't just about sort of making people aware, but also to kind of open up the idea of like what can be considered great. Like, there are some movies on there that I know people question, like something like House Party or whatever. Great movie, like, yeah, <laughs> great movie. But like, would you ever see them on like Sight and Sound? No, well, no. But like, <laughs> but to to me, I think there's something there's something to be said about a movie that doesn't take itself too seriously. And I think for a Black movie, too, especially like House Party, that's, like, kind of free of all of the, like, the pressures of, of that so often accompanying Blackness in film. Like, even Cooley High, which is, like, a really, really fun film um, by Michael Schultz, which is also on our list. Like, that movie ends, like, on a huge downer note. But, like, House Party is just always fun. Like, it's a just a straightforward, fun Got an iconic sequence. went It's like kickstarted so many different careers. So for us, it was also just about sort of the opening up the possibilities of like what we can, what we can consider great. And it doesn't have to be like high art. It doesn't have to be like as, as like perfectly shot and beautiful as, as do the right thing or, or to sleep with anger. Like it have also be really shaggy like house party or Friday, you know? So that's one of the things I appreciated about it. And, and, and I hope that like people you know, appreciate. Uh of course we didn't go solo with include Tyler Perry, but, you know, we we can't we can't do it all.
2: (laughs) Um, with lists such as this one, it's always interesting to see what's been excluded that you might have expected to be on there. Were there any movies that might have been on but didn't make it? Or surprises that were included?
3: Yeah, I mean I've been hearing a lot from people on Twitter. Like some people were surprised that we didn't have like straight out of content on there, but we did have Creed, a very very last minute addition. Like literally two days before was um, the, the the new OJ documentary by Ezra Edelman. Dan had the very nice idea so, to put in, and, and I binge watched that a couple weeks ago, and I just think it's absolutely excellent. And yes, like most of America hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> But like, I think it's really, truly going to go down as like one of the best and most compelling documentaries like ever created. Like, it's just a wonder to watch. So I think those are the sort of sort of films that people may not have been expecting to see on there, especially so early in the game. Um, and then there are also people who looked at the list and were like, "Where's Oscar Michelle?" And I'm like, "Oscar Michelle's on the list. We have within our gates on there." Um, Get down to so the
1: W's, people. Get down to the W's. Um, one thing that I found really striking is you can kind of track a lot of eras in film as you read the list. And, and one thing I like about this project is a follow-up to the Oscar So White conversation is obviously Oscar So White is about how you reward work. But you can only reward work that gets made and gets seen. And to take stock of what kinds of work has been made by black directors over the years and – what has happened to the directors of that work and where their careers have gone and what their stories have been. You know, that's not the purpose of this project exactly, but you get an interesting... Story that's sort of a, a sub narrative I took away from from reading the whole thing. I mean, my initial response was, "Oh my god, there's so many movies! I can't wait to see." Like I felt like I got exposed to so much work that that I'm excited to check out. Um, but the secondary narrative is okay. So you sort of have like you know a, a very early 1920 response to Birth of a Nation and Within Our Gates. Um, you kind of carry through the sort of message pictures of the mid century. You touch on black exploitation. Uh, And then there's this very interesting efflorescence of like kind of indie-ish stuff in the 80s and 90s where where you see that some movie was like a breakout hit at Sundance and some, you know, interesting young black storyteller told a story that people responded to and then like – Either explicitly, they barely got work ever again, and you talk about that in the piece, or or that's just more implicit in the fact that I at least hadn't heard a lot of the names, was not familiar with a lot of the films. And I felt like reading this, you really did get a sense of, okay, even when people overcome all the struggles to get work financed and get work made and get the kind of starting point accolades that can be the beginning of a big career in film, a lot of these careers kind of fizzled and... It makes me both hopeful and wary of a current moment where people are hoping that perhaps a bigger set of change can happen in terms of what kinds of people get to tell stories in Hollywood these days and whether people can focus their attentions more explicitly on who makes movies, who gets financed to make movies, what happens to promising young people from all different backgrounds and perspectives who make movies, like whether whether there's an apparatus that can be put in place for those for young filmmakers who have the starting points today to like get more work and do more and go further.
3: Right. Well, it does seem like it's just a different sort of, we're at a different moment now because you do have, you have directors like Ailey DuVernay and and Ryan Coogler who, unlike, you know, Spike Lee and Charles Burnett and all these other directors who are on this list, they are already pretty early in their careers and they're directing big Hollywood movies, Hollywood studio movies. Like, most of the movies on this list aren't even Hollywood studio movies. Um, a lot of them were independently made and independently financed. So I think there is some hope to be found in the fact that we now have someone like DuVernay and, and Kugler who, like, their names are being talked around. is going to be directing Black Panther. At one point, Ava DuVernay was supposed to be directing, I think, A Wrinkle in Time, the remake, or the, the adaptation. I'm not sure if she still is. I think she might have dropped out. But... You know, the fact that she's even her name is even coming up in that conversation, I think, says a lot for where we're going. And hopefully it gets better from there.
0: I mean, the thing that I the thing that constantly concerns me is that when you look at a, with this, at this list, I mean, there's a handful of movies by directors who I mean, that problem persists, basically. I mean, Tanya Hamilton is somebody who I, I would love to see her second movie. I'm really curious about what else she can do. I mean, she "Night Catches Us" is on this, is in this list. I mean, that was that movie was six years ago. It just takes a lot longer for the for women and people of color to get a second and third movie off the ground if they're going to stay outside the system, the Hollywood system, and that's exasperating in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm really I'm excited about Kugler and Ava DuVernay, but I mean, they be the first to tell you that there's a whole There's a whole neighborhood of people who want to work and and would like to be and have stories they want to tell. And I don't know. I mean, Steve McQueen is another person at that level who, you know, at this point is getting to a place where it's 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 somewhat easier for him to get a movie made if he wants to if he wants Mm -hmm. to do it.
1: Aisha, I know you have to go because you're literally recording this from a moving van. But Steve, with your leave, I was thinking maybe we could all wrap by naming the movie on the list that we're most excited to go watch that we either haven't seen or that we want to rewatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aisha, yeah, you absolutely. wanna you wanna do that and then and then depart for your your U-Haul?
3: Sure. That there are late... Three movies on the list that I still haven't seen myself, I'm going to admit. I was able to catch up with a lot of them. But uh, the one I'm probably most excited to see is um, I Like It Like That, the movie by Darnell Martin. It's a comedy, and uh, Rita Moreno's in it, and I love Rita Moreno. So I'm looking forward to finally catching up with that.
1: Great. All right. Have a good move. Thank you so much, Aisha, for all the work on the package (laughs) and for chatting with us
2: about it on a very busy day.
3: Of course. Thank you, guys. And thanks, Wesley again for your help. Thanks,
2: Aisha. Bye. All right, Wesley, uh, how much of this list have you seen, and what are you most looking forward to watching that you haven't seen?
0: Uh, I've seen all 50 movies. Nice. That's awesome. I mean, you know, I've seen all 50 movies. But a lot of them I've seen many times, and a few of them I've only seen once. All of the African directors who are on this list, I think, warrant a look. If you've never seen anything by uh, Jabril Diop Mambete, uh, there are any number uh, – Little Girl Who Sold the Sun, for instance, is is good. It's not on this list, but Tukibuki is – I mean I would just sort of start with directors I think is mm-hmm. maybe the easiest yeah. way to do it. I also, you know, though that – Sort of early black exploitation era, with with Superfly, which is on this list, and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which is Melvin Van Peebles. Gordon Parks did Superfly. I think all of those movies have, and, and Shaft is also Gordon Parks, which is on the list. I think all those movies sort of the legend of the black exploitation era sort of supersedes the actual quality of the movies and like how fun they are and what they're doing as both political documents and works of entertainment. It's really hard to sort of to say for me, I mean, I'm, I'm writing about this right now, so it's, I'm, I'm in it. But that era, movie to movie, is just it, so many just amazing visions of blackness in America unto itself, um, both reacting against the political climate and just as a sort of communal communication experience is just it's astonishing and it'll never happen again and a lot of those movies are represented on this list. So between the black exploitation movies, the OJ movie, the African directors, I mean So we should start with 12 to 15 of these. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All I right. mean, the movies the films of Avery DuVernay, Before Selma, um, you know, I I don't know. I mean, it's a really valuable it's a really valuable list.
1: My pick The biggest hole, I think, in my viewing here is I've never seen any movies by Charles Burnett. So I think I'm going to start with To Sleep With Anger, which Mm -hmm. is his film from 1990 about a middle class black family and sounds great.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I might start with Killer of Sheep. I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen it. All right. Well, check it out on Slate. It's called The Black Film Candidates by Isha Harris and Dan Coyce. Uh, It has contributions from many people, including uh, Wesley Morris. It is eminently worth browsing through seriously and following through on by watching films check it out uh all right julia now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor what do we have
1: the Culture Gab Fest is also brought to you this week by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. How much do you make? How big is your savings? These are some of the most personal and maybe uncomfortable questions that someone can ask you. But where does that discomfort come from? On Open Account, a podcast created by Umqua Bank, host Suchin Pak and her guests get open and honest about making, losing, and living with money. You'll hear an NBA star talk about his first professional paycheck, a Daily Show producer recall his parents' penny pinching, and a husband and wife duo discuss the role that marriage plays and managing their small businesses and that's just the first three episodes these conversations wind up being about way more than dollars they're about culture power class and the complex emotions that drive our financial decisions open account is available wherever you get your podcasts so download subscribe and get a little more comfortable with your money all right steve
2: what's next all right now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse julia turner what do you have
1: yeah i have a Location-specific endorsement, but the location is not the greater New York or Hudson Valley area. Uh, I went and visited Chicago about a month ago, and it was a very cold, rainy weekend, and I enjoyed many of the treasures of that city. But the thing that was most delightful that I did was go to Frank Lloyd Wright's home in Oak Park. Uh, which is in this neighborhood that's just studded with Frank Lloyd Wright houses. Like, I guess he was the neighbor and everybody was like, make me one of those. Um, So you kind of walk around these leafy streets and there's a bunch of his trademark low-slung wonderments. But you can also tour his own home, the home that he built for his family before that family split up, thanks to him. And it is just... I'm at a loss for words for how to describe it, as you guys can see in the studio. I've probably
0: seen this. I've not been to the actual Frank Lloyd Wright house, but I've seen, I mean, I've been to Oak Park. You should accident. go
1: inside. Next time you're there, you should go inside. <laughs> Waiting I mean, for
0: a haircut? It's it just, took too long. It's just for a little while. It's
1: like a leafy suburb. But the house unfolds in this really magical way. I mean, it's like you're being taken on a tour of these little jewel box rooms. Rooms that are so thoughtful and incredibly distinctive and strange. One of my favorite rooms is the dining room, which is uh, has burlap for wall covering and I think ceiling covering, and the table has these kind of custom chairs with extremely high backs, which you know would be totally you know, inconvenient and dumb looking in any sort of modern open plan house with like a, a big cool lounge space. Mm. However, I was, I found myself imagining what it would be like to be at a family dinner, or a dinner party at this table where the table itself becomes a room because these chairs are so high backed they go up like two or three feet over your head. So you'd be in this like tiny intimate room mm. and just a mat- and the lights are very low and there's these burlap walls and you just are in this incredibly thoughtful space. Like mm-hmm. I was imagining the kind of conversations you would have family dinner or at a dinner party at that space. And it just felt like the design was intended for the creation of these magical moments. There's an extraordinary playroom. There's a great kid's bedroom. The whole thing unfolds in this very complicated way. I'm the sort of person who any space I walk into, I'm like I'm making a floor plan of it in my head. Like I'm I'm a oriented person and I – think in floor plans and I I keep track like I, when I go into a space I like to understand that space and it, mm-hmm. this thing is totally labyrinthine and thus mysterious but also very simple feeling at the mm-hmm. same time like it's labyrinthine without being stress inducing I mean I'm obviously listeners to the show will know I'm a person who believes that design is worthwhile and important and interesting and not just like the way that you make fancy things that Olivia Pope wears. But like if you're anywhere near there, go to it. And if you're not near it, you should make a point of going there sometime in your life.
0: Um, yeah,
2: Wesley, what do you have?
0: I'm going to do two things really quickly. I hate to part endorsement as a listener to the show, but I just will say I'll <laughs> give a, I'll give a local New York one and just say, Hey, it's summer. There's a lot of theater. If you're in New York, that you can go see, I don't have any specific recommendations, although I've seen The Humans, which I think is fantastic. And uh, Shuffle Along I think is really, really good. The first hour of that show is the tightest musical I've seen in a long time, and it's amazing. The cast is going to change soon. Also, the summer, like if you're here in the next month, you should try to get to all the shows you want to see that have been up for a little bit because the casts are going to change in some cases. Mm -hmm. But um, if you want to see a really short amazing play the humans is is very very good and then i just want to do a universal endorsement for it being pie season (laughs) at least (laughs) at my house and it it's you get really like a reverse troll you get (sighs) (laughs) It,
2: it really is
0: Oh, because you both hate the humans and I miss the humans episode? No, no,
1: no. The pie
0: part, because Steve is always endorsing random pie in upstate New York that no one oh, can eat. A, so we, we, like, we only get flack for no, no, endorsing no, no. pie. See, I listen to those and I'm just like, Stephen, you could dig yourself out of so many holes if you just tell people to make their own pies. <laughs> so, I mean, it probably won't be as good as the pies that you recommend, which I've never had, by the way. But mm-hmm. I'm going to come up there at some point. But I, I just like trying to bake. I'm not a great baker, but I've gotten very good at it. And I think that part of the incentive for me to do it is that you have access to all this really good fruit in New York because it's, you know, everything goes. I mean, I could guess I could make a strawberry shortcake any time of the year, but I like to wait till it's time to use the strawberries. So I am you know, strawberry season and then cherries and then blueberries and peaches and and apples in the fall. It's just like, it's a good five month stretch. Stretches out that toboggan ride. Yeah, Mm -hmm. or like, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. six months of just like really good pies. So if you guys if you if you care at all about like making your kitchen too hot for a couple hours once or twice a week try to try to make some pies with your own crust
2: yeah wesley i can't wait till you come up um this way i will take you pie shopping please Please do
0: that's why i'm coming
2: up brilliant um all right i'm gonna uh, endorse dame iris murdoch Um, It's been too long since I've read Iris Murdoch, and I'm dipping back in. She really is one of my favorite novelists. And there's something about a writer that wasn't ostentatiously great. Um, But Mm. this, of course, is her virtue. I mean, she wrote a lot of books. Being prolific rarely has been associated with being great, I'd argue, in the history of English literature. You're much better off publishing three books and having two of them be absolute, you know, you know, Everest-like peaks than you are doing what what Murdoch did or Trollope or you know even to a degree Graham Greene, which is just writing and writing diligently every day for decade upon decade. But in her instance, it's just a peculiar kind of greatness, which is just inhabiting deeply and with moral reflection. You know the society in which she happened to be born, which was mid-century England. And trying to probe it with um, a degree of philosophical self consciousness. So, the other fascinating thing about Iris Murdoch is she's the rarity who wrote both fiction of the first rank, but also philosophy of not quite the first rank, but I mean, very, very close. I mean, she really was a remarkable kind of left handed philosopher, possibly. And The Sovereignty of the Good is a. Classic and deserves rereading, and so she was someone who was both able to think about both the universal and the particular, and to unite them in all of her creative projects. And so, I mean, there are some obvious ones one would choose to read first. The nonfiction is "The Sovereignty of the Good" is probably her best work, but you know, "A Severed Head" among the novels, "The Sea, the Sea," I can, I can, "The Black Prince." I mean, I can put a list on there, but um, you, you feel as though you are returning to a deeply English, comfortable but morally compromised uh, universe um, in reading her works. And um, I, it's a slowly unfolding thrill to get to know Iris Murdoch. So highly recommend it if you don't. Uh, Wesley, thanks so much for joining us. As always, just an absolute pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me. It was fun.
2: Julie, it was great fun.
1: So much fun. Also, Double Down on the Humans. Great play. See that play.
0: Yeah.
2: Very good. I will absolutely try to do that. Um, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster panoply shows on itunes.com slash panoply and our twitter feed is at slate cult fest Julia Turner and Wesley Morris I'm Stephen Metcalf thank you so much for joining us we'll see you soon